Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Kodakery. I'm Megan. And I'm Josh. And I'm Parker Hill. Parker is an emerging filmmaker who has created several incredible award-winning short films, including a documentary on Jason Lee's latest book, A Plain View. We talk with Parker about her storytelling and falling in love with photography, which she now uses as a way to visually express her inspiration for future projects to collaborators. She also discusses the process for marketing her work in today's media-saturated landscape, the difference between film festivals and her website to showcase her work, what she aims to express in her work, and why she enjoys using the format of film. So let's jump into the Kodakery and talk with Parker. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Kodakery. Today in the Kodakery, Megan and I want to shine a spotlight on a very talented up-and-coming filmmaker, Parker Hill. Parker, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. So, Parker, we, we, we've, we've been doing lots and lots of watching of your work, research. It's a beautiful stuff. There's so much we want to talk to you about. But before we dig into any specific projects, I kind of wanted to go back a little bit. What was it that led you to film school? What is it about filmmaking that, that uh, inspired you to kind of get started and pursue this path? Uh, for me, you know, it, um, I don't have some crazy aha moment. It was kind of, it was gradual in terms of my interest in storytelling. I got a camcorder when I was in sixth grade, and my best friend and I would make little films on DV cam, and, you know, we'd, like, rewind the tape to do another take and stuff like that. And we were doing that for a couple of years, and I just kind of fell in love with the idea of making movies. Um, and when I was about a sophomore in high school, I took a couple of classes, one of which was it was called video production, but it was really just editing, and I learned Final Cut Pro, and I just fell in love, and I kind of just knew that was what I was going to do. And so I applied to film school, and from there I've been making movies and writing them ever since. And so you went to the Tisch School of the Arts? Yes, I went to NYU, okay, uh, the and Tisch program. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I know while you are at Tisch um, at NYU, you probably got some films under your belt, but maybe you could explain to us what happens after you graduate. What are those first steps you take into sort of stepping out on your own and and becoming a filmmaker, not just a, a student? Yeah. Well, so at school, I, um, I wanted to write and produce. Uh, I didn't really think I wanted to be a director at the time, um, and I helped. I wrote and produced a couple of my friends' shorts, and I think it was by the time, like midway through my senior year, I realized that I, I really wanted to direct. And so I made a thesis film. And then after school, you know, I uh, wanted to be a director. And I was saying the phrase, I want to be a director. You know, you'd take a meeting with someone. And you'd, I realized someone asked me, someone, I was at a party once, and someone said, oh, you're a director. Like, what have you made? And that was, at the moment, like the most frightening question ever. <laughs> Because I realized I, I hadn't made anything. I really didn't have a body of work under me. Um, and then something else that happened right after school is I was the director's assistant on a feature film. And on that film, I uh, learned a lot. It was fantastic, to a great experience to be on a feature from start to finish all the way through, like from prep all the way uh, to wrapping. Uh, and on that film, I became very good friends with the DP, and he kind of uh, introduced me to photography. And that like changed my world. Uh, once I started taking stills, uh, I started looking at a lot of photography and then I started taking a lot of stills and it was an amazing liberating feeling because first of all, you know, as a filmmaker, filmmaking is a very collaborative experience, but you know, it takes a lot of time and resources and, and people, other humans. And, you know, I can't direct a short film every day of the week, but I realized that I could take a photo. I could direct the camera mm -hmm. whenever I wanted. 
And so then I started taking a lot of photos, and I started to feel like I had a body of work under me. Uh, you know, I was making content that, that was my vibe, that was my style, and it was really great, even on just an emotional confidence level, to be able to start pitching on things where, you know, in the pitch I'm using my images. Mm. It felt great because, you know, I didn't have a huge directorial body of work behind me in motion picture. You know, I couldn't show you tons of commercials I had made or something, but I could show you the vibe and that I'm obviously capable of delivering that because I shot them. You know, I, I shot the, the images you're looking at. And, uh, yeah, from there it just kind of, um, you know, after film school there are a lot of, you're not just going to jump in and get to direct feature films right away. You know, you decide if you want to make other shorts, you start to pursue some commercial or music video or branded content kind of things, you know, and you kind of just follow the opportunities as they come. And so for me, through photos, honestly, I, is how I got my first couple of, uh, I guess, how I made my first couple of films right after school, which was, you know, I did a, a photo series, and then a friend inspired me to sh kind of make that series into a motion picture piece, so I kind of made it into a fashion film. The first, like, photographic series I did was shooting Houses at Night. Um, it was heavily inspired by Todd Heido's series House Hunting. And from there, I uh, wrote a, I had an idea for a short film, and uh, I pitched it, and I got a grant to be able to make it, and we got to shoot on film on Super 16, which was a dream. Nice. And it was kind of a, a really natural process for me in terms of, like, once I started taking photos, photography kind of inspired the film, and now film inspires the photography, and it's a a nice relationship I have with my, like, creative ideas at the moment. That's great. And you mentioned doing that film on Super 16. Are you, when you were uh, first starting out in photography, were you shooting on film as well, or was it... I, I've only shot stills on film. So, like, upon starting taking stills, that's all analog. And, um, and what about yeah. when you were in Tish? What was the split between learning on digital and film? What was that like? I mean, we've talked to... Um, Two friends of the Kodakery, as Josh likes to say, right. uh, Tony Janelli and Alexander Rockwell, who I don't know if you... If... I know Tony. Okay. Uh, I worked on a... I art directed a web series that Tony directed, oh, actually, cool. randomly. Nice. <laughs> but, so we, uh, we've talked to them a little yeah. bit about, you know, um, how the progression of um, teaching film and teaching digital, but kind of like to hear it from you, what that experience was like for you there. You know, once you've graduated, do you feel proficient in both and et cetera? Yeah, so, I mean, I, um, Tony is in the grad department. I did undergrad at Tisch, and the year that I was a sophomore, there's this class you take called Sight and Sound where you make five short films in a semester. And the, the first year, like the year that they went from, did, uh, from film to digital was my year. So I actually took Sight and Sound digitally with a Sony FS100. We weren't shooting on 16 anymore. And they converted a room of Steenbeck's to a room of Macs and Avid and, and editing on a computer. So I didn't actually have a class. And I, when I was in school, I didn't take any camera classes. So I know some camera classes you get to do tests and shoot on 16 and 35, but I did not have that experience at all. Uh, but when I was in school, I loaded a fi uh, someone's thesis that was on 35, and then I ended up uh, becoming good friends with that director, and she and I made a short that I wrote and produced that she directed that was on 35. And so that was like kind of the first big short that I was a part of um, that was uh, was on film. And once I did it, I was hooked. I just I loved the 
everything from the texture to the discipline that you have on set to the the overall like attitude and energy towards creating that thing that you're going to record on film uh, just felt right. It felt like we weren't just, you know, students practicing. Not that you can't make a beautiful digital film. I mean, I've had, I've made several shorts digitally. But um, that, so like that, that first big short on 35 was kind of my foray into film when I was in school, and I absolutely loved it. But most films uh, that I was a part of while I was in school was digital. And then once I got out um, is when I started shooting on film. So the, the short that I made, I guess, a year after graduating was the first time I had directed something on film. And it was a really great learning experience. And I remember when I got, before I got the film back, uh, I was like, wow, this was awesome. I got to do it again because I know I can do better <laughs> next time. <laughs> and which um, short was that one? Just so our That was listeners. Homing In. Right. Okay. Um, that was the one that was inspired by uh, a series of houses at night I shot. Hmm. It was inspired by stills on film. And we just knew uh, we were going for, you know, a very timeless but seemingly dated American cinematic look of, uh, you know, it's based on a true story in 1950s Levittown, but the film, we, the reason to shoot that one on film is not just because of the awesomeness of 16, which I love, and, you know, green and whatnot, but uh, to me, it also had to do, like, specific to that content and the kind of allegorical nature of the story we were going for. It felt nice to to shoot it on film, it, it just felt appropriate in terms of, like, it being something where you can't quite tell what's happening. There's something that you're unsure about. There's this level that's, you know, if it were shot digitally with Master Primes, the story wouldn't quite make sense. It was like the form and the content were really well matched on that project for me. Yeah, I loved that one, by the way. Really impactful in the short amount of time that, um, you know, it it lived in. Really fantastic. But I love hearing that the photographs inspired it because I noticed on your website that in a lot of the films you have, there are also then stills, um, and now it's making a little bit more sense um, right, right. with your style. The way it's happened most times is that, like, I will get into a series. I'll either find, uh, like, there's a series of photos I'm shooting or there's, like, a new place, a new location that I'm, like, fascinated or inspired by. And the photos usually come first, and then a DP, my DP that I've worked with a lot, he's like, oh, my gosh, we got to do this motion picture and so then it's like that spurs the that's making really cool. it into yeah. something else. Yeah. yeah on the film side like one of the things we hear a lot anecdotally is that um it's really hard for a new filmmaker to use film it's too expensive it's there's there's a lot of kind of i would say mythology out there that like it's just easier to start with digital what what has your experience been i mean you've done as you said both digital and film shorts um has it been difficult for you to 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 fund film projects and things like that like tell our audience a little bit about kind of like how you got film into so many of these shorts yeah i mean um they've been different every time so first of all one of the benefits of shooting on film is that it's sometimes easier to get a package for the camera and lenses from a rental house i mean nowadays i, th- I think there is a little bit of a resurgence so it's not like you can get a 416, an RA 416 for super cheap, but I think that uh, in terms of cost, sometimes like a cheaper camera package will help compensate for other expenses that you're going to incur. But you know, the short, the short I made on 35 when I was at NYU, um, one of our a camera professor that the director was very close with gave us short ends, which were awesome. It was short ends from 
Noah, actually. Darren Aronofsky's Noah is kind of hilarious <laughs> that the, like, tape on the short ends. But, I mean, they, they call short ends a thousand-foot rolls. So for right. students, like, yeah, short. I'll take, I'll take 7,000 feet of film. So that was kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, in general, like, there are a bunch of, you know, Facebook groups that I'm a part of from Tish or whatever. People are constantly posting, like, they have short ends. I feel like uh, there is a collaborative Everyone wants to promote people shooting on film, so I feel like if you're really hunting down, you know, 3,000 feet of 50D or something on 16, you can find people that can help you out, or they just did a commercial job that has, you know, like, I feel like um, there are ways to be very indie about procuring stock, for sure. The short I made on 16, I fortunately got a grant for, so that was kind of unheard of in the short film landscape, um, but it was... Yeah, I mean, we we pitched to a foundation and we fortunately got the grant, so it was that cost was covered, which was great. You know, now I, at the moment I'm in the middle of a a little kick on Super 8, and uh, Super 8 is so cheap, right. and I'm loving it. Could you say that again? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> just keep saying that over and over again. Right, right. Um, no, no. So, so when you say you're on a kick, what what are you working on? Well, so in uh, in December, I shot a fashion film at this abandoned school in upstate New York. It's like an abandoned elementary school. This, uh, the city or the town, I guess, like built a new one, and this old one has been like sitting there for 30 years. And it's funny, even though all the things are taking, taken out of it, there are some just like details that are just so identifiably like an old elementary school. Like they have a pink bathroom and a blue bathroom, and mm-hmm. it's just so cute. And so for that project, uh, we did a mix of digital, it was Alexa, and Super 8, because I just wanted to include a lot of the details of the building um, on a way older format, like a format that just feels a lot older and brings this kind of nostalgic energy to it so that it's intercutting with maybe, it's, it's, it's a, the film is about these group of kids that are like exploring their old stomping grounds, even though it's a now abandoned building. And what I loved about introducing the Super 8 into the cut was, you know, kind of like, are these moments that they're remembering? Because obviously we're shooting them all at the same age. It's not like we intercut with, with kids in there. It was um, kind of just like a, a tool used to get the nostalgic energy of the place, of, and, you know, intercutting between memory and what's actually there, how the building is in their memory and what the building actually is decaying and looking like now. And uh, once I did that... Um, I was hooked. I that we did a test. My DP and I did a test on Super 8, and we got it back. And I was like, "Oh wow, this it holds a lot more information than I thought." You know, it because uh, the only other like exposure I had had to Super 8 is like on a projector watching my mom's home movies. And so once I saw like you know a 2K scan, I was this is so cool. So I'm I'm in the middle currently of shooting a I guess you'd call it guerrilla style like dance piece in the subways at night in this mm-hmm. in new york city cool. on super eight and it's so kind of liberating because it doesn't i similar to my photographs i don't need a huge crew i'm not renting tons of equipment i own uh, a canon like 1014 and i just get the cartridges and i can go and shoot whenever i'm ready and the the model of the dancer is ready and it's kind of nice to just be able to go and make things when i want to make things without having a huge uh, you know, hold up of trying to secure tons of funding or trying to, you know, get, we're not getting a permit to shut down a, a subway station or something like that. Right, right. <clears throat> where where was the school in upstate New York, just out of curiosity? Uh, it's in a town called Otisville. 
which is right next to Middletown. Okay. It's like off Route 17. We're, um, we're up in Rochester, so I wasn't sure where if you were in our neck of the woods. Oh, right. Yeah, no, it's a little little closer than Rochester, but um, very cute town. Otisville, then. What's the connection there? Um, My thesis film from NYU is called One Good Pitch, and um, that... I was looking for a location, and what I did is I started reaching out to New York State Film Commission has a great website that has, like, all of their counties' film commissions listed. Mm -hmm. So I joined the listserv of a bunch of counties' film commissions, and Orange County, New York posts, like, you know, location of the month, or, you know, here's this exciting new location that we're interested in, you know, trying to get some film to happen there. And so I, because I was on the listserv, I got an email about this elementary school. And I reached out and I was like, you guys, this is awesome. Can I use it? And they, they hadn't had anything that shot there um, yet at the time. So I said, you know, can I come and make a film? I'll take some beautiful photos there. We'll, we'll shoot uh, a little dance piece and then I'll share the footage and the photos with you. And you guys can use that to promote. You can show that, you know, use that to show people that shoots do happen here. And it was kind of a, a very great time of like, help me help you. Right. Kind of situation, yeah. Cool. You mentioned earlier, um, you just you just said the word DP or your cinematographer, and it sparked in my head that I did see the name Luca Del Pupo. Um, yeah. Is Without scanning through every single one of them, I can't tell if that's the only person you work with, but you guys have a pretty good working relationship. What's that like? Yeah, Luca and I have a, a great working relationship. He's shot most of what I've directed, except for One Good Pitch, um, a great DP, Maria Rushi, shot that. She's uh, She was a year ahead of me from Tish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, Luca and I have um, worked together a lot in the past few years. He was the DP of that that feature that I was the director's assistant on, so he kind of, like, showed me. I say he, like, showed me photography, but he really did. Like, you know, we would drive to set together, and one day he showed me uh, William Eggleston photographs, and then we started looking at Stephen Shore photographs, and then he showed me Todd Heido. And I was like, wait, oh, my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. I've got to go figure out how to take stills like that. So I, you know, went out and started shooting long exposures, and I'd get a roll back, and he and I would look at them, and we'd, like, say, you know, you can, like, do better. Or, like, I'd ask exposure questions and stuff. Because he's definitely an you know analog lover. He shoots stills on film and uh, dreams of you know we'd love to shoot like a feature on film together. Um, and it was kind of just a really great natural progression of starting to craft a language of, of what we both like and you know we have uh, I think similar tastes in terms of images and, and how we like to expose it. And homing in was the first thing that I directed that he shot, and it was a really great collaboration. Um, and he. Uh, on that film, we pushed the film, and once we did that, I fell in love with pushing film, and I pushed my stills like crazy. I've never pulled a roll of film in my life, but once we started doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, the grain is amazing, and uh, that was a tangent. But you know, he and I have a great working relationship This is together. a great tangent. Um, our audience yeah. loves any tangent about grain or <laughs> film or anything, so it's fantastic. So um, how did you come to work with Jason Lee on the, the Sanderson to Brackettville documentary. Yeah, that doc kind of came about in a, a random mix of things. Uh, Jason started or and co-runs this um, analog curated account on Instagram called Film Photographic. Mm-hmm. And back when I was doing Houses at Night, I had messaged with Film Photographic. He, had, you know, they, they had posted a couple of my photos. And then I did a series, call, a series of stills called The Doctor's House uh, at this old man's 
house and Jason liked them. And then I think he started following me and, you know, a great part of what Jason posts about on Instagram is like, he would say, you know, what kind of scanner he's using, what kind of print printer he's using to print things. He's, he posts a lot about the technical side of things. And, you know, I, um, I, used to not scan my film. Now I scan. So like when I was looking for a scanner, I messaged, he was like, he's a great resource. Um, so we were like messaging on Instagram in terms of asking about, you know, just like what kind of scanner should I get and all this. And then, um, he would post a lot about this, the, the book he was shooting, a plain view that he was going on the road. He went on, I think two trips in Texas before the trip I joined him on. And uh, I was talking to Luca, and I messaged him, sent him an email through his website, and was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm Parker Chill from Instagram. Uh, you keep posting about this road trip you're doing, and I have a crazy idea. What if I join you on the road? And we do a little doc about, you know, the road trip experience in general and what, what you're after in terms of this book and what you're trying to say and do with the plain view. And it kind of just worked out. It worked together. Like, it, you know, everything from there kind of fell into place. And Luca and I uh, met him in Houston, and we were with him on the road for five days. And, uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was a great experience. Cool. And we were wondering how, you know, sort of going into it, did you just take a ton of footage while you were with him? Did you have somewhat of an idea about how you wanted to put it all together? Did that come organically? How did it how did it all come together as a final piece? I mean, it was definitely a process. Uh, this was my first documentary, uh, short doc, and uh, I definitely learned a lot about ducks as I made it. I had never been to Texas, so a big allure for me was joining Jason on the road, but also I wanted to do a road trip in Texas. I have this, like, I'm born and raised in New York City, and I have this, like, romantic idea of the American West. Like, Texas is my Paris. Like, I just dream of, like, America is over there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I wanted to go on the road and, like, really understand and, like, experience what, like, an American road trip is. You know, you, I love photographers like... Stephen Shore and a lot of the new topographics photographers, and I kind of just had this, yeah, like concept of what does it look like to shoot the American landscape today, you know, because nowadays, if you look on Instagram, there's so much what I'll call American iconography, Americana photography out there. I mean, so many people shoot gas stations and diners and motels, and what I'm interested in you know, exploring or not answering, but even posing the question is like, what are we after when we shoot this stuff? Why does it, what is the nostalgic nature of that, of those places, those kinds of structures, the, the paint, uh, the color palette, the way those buildings look, why do we love them? You know, for me, I didn't grow up in the seventies, like Jason, like going on road trips, but I grew up with movies like back to the future. And so like, I have this like idea of what America used to be. And I'm like, you know, searching for that and trying to understand why a lot of people are interested in that. So that was kind of my interest going into it. And then obviously Jason's, what the inspiration for him behind the, his book definitely fueled a lot of the, the structure of the doc, the, the content of what Jason was talking about in terms of the voiceover. But to me, it really came from images. It came from still photographs. And so before Luca and I left, we had spoken about, you know, kind of rules for ourselves of how we wanted to shoot it. I really liked the idea of kind of showing these huge spaces, these vast wide open spaces, 
and kind of trying to shoot a duck like still photographs and just have Jason inhabit them. Mm. And to me, that, that felt very appropriate, too, for the... Jason was shooting his series on 4x5 film, and there's, you know, there's a perspective to 4x5 that it doesn't just look like a photo of something on the side of the road. It looks like you're standing there on the side of the road. And there's just like a nature to a lot of his images and that the content of what he's, he was looking for, that what he was shooting, that to me just felt like whether or not he was there to shoot that photo, that thing is still sitting there, mm-hmm. that orange and uh, turquoise motel in, in Marathon, Texas, is still sitting there right now. And so what we really wanted to shoot it in a way that's like Jason is inhabiting the frame. He's going in and out. He's setting up his photo. He might leave the frame and, you know, the camera will still linger. But the point is, is that this stuff is kind of, it's still sitting there. If you, if you were to go through a lot of the places we went to, I bet you could find a lot of the same things. You know, it's still there. And that was kind of like a guiding rule that was how Luke and I wanted to shoot it. Um, was definitely heavily inspired by stills that were references for us, you know, like Stephen Shore and Gary Winogrand, Joel Sternfeld, Joel Meyer, a lot of these uh, 1970s American iconic photographers that have shot, you know, these beautiful cars and and gas stations and small details of daily American life. They were definitely like color inspirations for us, and um, and that was kind yeah, of and it definitely feels yeah. like a perfect companion to the book. It was like one of the things when I watched it, um, like it feels like it belongs with his photography, like the, like almost yeah. as if you've just walked right into one of his photos. Right. We were and, saying it like it, you brought it to life a little bit, you know, like each image. And that sounds like you meant to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, definitely. It was, uh, what was exciting for me was, you know, like I had never done a doc before. And so, especially when you're following someone on the road, we didn't know where he was going to stop. I mean, he didn't know where he was going to stop. That's the whole kind of excitement of being on the hunt for anything that catches your eye. And uh, so it was was definitely exciting and sometimes stressful of, like, you know, every time he would get to a location, we're not just looking for the photo he's looking for. We're looking for Mm -hmm. some frame that has the space and has him, you know. So it was kind of – it was was very interesting, too, because if there are some – places that like we our angle and his angle are the same angle we shot the place the same way you know we're just farther back including him Mm -hmm. and then there are some that like we took the photo or took the photo we recorded him our angle is so different from his angle and it was kind of really interesting too just like to be on a road trip with another photographer and there's you know there's my taste there's Luca's taste and then there was Jason's taste or it's not even taste as much as like you know just what piques your interest when you get to a place and it was kind of, it was a fun thing, you know, by the end of the trip when we're, like, a lot more comfortable and, you know, we have a little bit of a rhythm, it's kind of interesting to just see, like, where Jason would flock to in a given space and where we would flock to in a given space. Is yeah, that kind is of interesting. really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I liked one of the one of the scenes was, like, it. you had the camera steady on one spot and then, like, the one of the legs of his tripod kind of, like, comes in from the left side. So it's yeah. like all of a sudden he kind of like sneaks in. You're like, oh, yeah, he's there too, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That yeah. shot like was a really amazing hidden gem of the footage. Oh, really? Uh, Luca was annoyed. Like when we were shooting it, I remember that Luca was like, we didn't know where he was going to land. And Luca wanted him to just walk into frame. He didn't want to have to pan. And when Jason like started setting up his camera, not 
where we were looking, Luca was like, oh, we missed it. And I was like, no, 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 like, hold on. Like, it'll, it'll work out. It'll work out. And then when we're, like, editing the footage, it was kind of awesome because it was uh, – we cut from one of those um, – throughout the dock, you know, we show the ground glass. We show what Jason can see through his camera. And so, like, we cut from – what that photo actually was to that frame. And it was like, oh, he's like a part of the photograph a little bit. Mm-hmm. So it, was, yeah, it yeah. worked out. Right. One of the things that struck me while I was watching a lot of your films, but specifically this one that we're talking about, Sanderson to Brackettville, is the, the element of time. And what I mean by time is, you know, how much time you spend on one shot before you move on to the next one. And, yeah, um, like pacing. Yeah, pacing. And it, it feels to me, as not a filmmaker, but that it's like a, sort of this thing that I, uh, can it be learned or do you just have it? You know, like a musician, like you kind of just, you got to start with the baseline. And I feel like the timing in your films is so perfect. I, I mean, is that a learned thing or do you think some of it is just you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll take the compliment. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. You know, most of what I've, I mean, everything I've directed, I've edited. Um, and I definitely, because I mean, I, to me, I, I got into filmmaking through editing. And it's just kind of, I say on set, like, I'm just so excited to shoot certain frames because I can't wait to sit in the in the edit room with the footage. Like, I just can't wait to play around with the footage. I'm shooting just so I can have a great day tomorrow editing the footage. (laughs) But I don't know. You know, I think, to me, pacing is definitely so related to the content. You know, like, Love Otisville is basically a music video or a dance film, and that was, like, very dictated by the the vibe we were going for, the emotion we were going for, and the the song that we chose had had a certain pace. But to me, you know, Sanderson to Brackettville and Homing In, which is definitely very deliberately paced, they're just, you know, I, I think maybe because I'm at the moment doing some projects based on the inspiration for the projects it comes from still photographs, that I feel like I'm shooting them in a certain way, that we're shooting frames that you just want to linger on because they feel like stills. Mm-hmm. And the the pace is kind of set by not just the content, but the way we're shooting it. Like, there's a phrase, like, the, the storytelling informs the story that you're telling. And mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say, like, oh, I'm a fan of a, a slower pace. I would say I'm a fan of a deliberate pace, meaning, you know, yeah. it's, it's necessary to what you're trying to get across. And, you know, something like Sanderson to Brackettville, you know, so many of these frames, I think in part because I'm an outsider to... Uh, this kind of Western American landscape, I'm just like in awe of it. And it's the be- it's just so beautiful to me and it's so vast and so open. I remember when we were driving on I-90, I would just, like I would turn to Luke and say, there's just so much earth. Like as far as you can see to the left and to the right, there's just land, <laughs> which does not happen right. here in the Northeast. <laughs> Especially in New York City. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But even if you drive, you know, in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, the tree line starts so much closer to the road. The yeah. tree line right, in right. Texas, in West Texas, starts so far from where you are that a, that a parking lot is just a way bigger parking lot. You know, the, the distance of where the buildings start is half a mile, a quarter of a mile off the road. So you just get to see so much more open space. And, uh, and we shot it like that. We shot it to capture the the dead silence of some of these spaces but also that they're breathing that they're just sitting there that there's kind of i think to me 
the fact that I was so inspired by the location is why is why we shot it in a certain way and is why you you're okay with living with these frames in in the edit like you're okay with staying on them and letting them breathe and feeling the space because there's like a it's like a reverence and an excitement for for these these spaces for what they look like for these locations for the fact that they're just sitting there like you can just go and take a photo of all these things they're just out there and uh i think it's like to me very yeah it's very connected to the the feeling i have for these locations is like is why they were shot that way and is why i think hopefully you're okay with living with them in the edit for for longer than or just for a a slower pace because there's so much to look at. You're taking it in, and you get a certain feeling when you live in certain shots for a long time, because or just longer than normal, maybe, yeah. because you're uh, you're like you know what it feels like to be there a little bit. You know, you can hear a dog barking when mm-hmm. he's outside of one of these gas stations, and it's like yeah, these random sounds that happen in a small town. You know, we tried a cut of the dock way faster, and we tried it with so much more of Jason's voiceover. And it was actually a minute shorter or two minutes shorter in the cut, but it felt so much longer. It was like a really weird Hmm. combination of just having him talk the whole time and trying to show as many locations as as we went to felt like exhausting a little bit because you couldn't just like sit and breathe in them. And I think to get your headspace into what a road trip is, it's a lot of long stretches but it's a lot of, you know, long stretches until something catches your eye. And then you pull over and you can't believe that this thing is just sitting there, a, a gas station in, you know, Sanderson or something, and there's beautiful magic hour light and you pull over and you kind of just can't believe it. But it's just chilling there waiting for you to take a photo of it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like very still, yeah. I feel like. When you get out of the car, it's just like there's just this stillness that's kind of like the that's what i got from it you know what i mean it's like this build up you get there and then it's just it's not moving (laughs) it's just sitting there totally and part of what jason i think is capturing is he's trying to capture the stillness you know and also because he was shooting four by five you can be fast and there were definitely times where he you know uh was trying to grab something before it went away so he'd like hustle out there but it is a lot more of a slow deliberate kind of shooting you know it's not snapshots on 35 catching a decisive moment it's way more of these like loose frames that if he got there an hour later or an hour earlier the light might be different but but that the that thing is still sitting there which i think is part of what his whole book was about you know yep and just to go back a little bit to his part of uh the pacing conversation, like the storytelling in your films. I mean, you've written a lot of these as well, like, mo- like I think everything that we're talking about. And, and, and there's always something, uh, there's something very sophisticated about the way you're telling your stories and not to ruin anything for people. Go to Parker Hill's website, which we will put parkerhill.com. We'll put it in the Parker show. Parkerhill.com. Oh, parkerchill.com. Parkerhill.com is a community church. Right, okay. Very unrelated to me. <laughs> so so uh, we'll fix that. Go to parkerchill.com and check out the, the shorts, but like um, what good pitch, Bandito. Like there's uh, how, how as you're writing the project and then you're filming, then you're editing, like you're, you're kind of there through the whole thing, even some of the ones that you don't direct you're on as a producer, I'm sure. How, how how does the writing and the initial conception relate to the final edit? Like, is, are are you bringing to life exactly what you originally imagined, or how much does it change through the process? 
You know, it's so specific project to project. Uh, Bandito, One Good Pitch, and Where There's Smoke, I co-wrote with uh, my writing partner, Evan Kelman, and he directed Bandito and Where There's Smoke. And, you know, One Good Pitch, I would say, is definitely the closest film to the script. Um, Bandito, you know, was a 22-page script that we turned into a 15-minute short, so we definitely changed some things in the edit and lost, uh, just tried to keep the pace moving. Um, You know, that was the first, I would call, large-scale short that Evan and I had made, and um, we learned a lot. We also learned a lot about festival programming in terms of, you know, shorter is better sometimes to be in, to have a space for you in a shorts block. You know, you have to actually ask yourself, do we have 20 minutes of story here or do we not? Do we have 15 minutes of story with, you know, two-minute beautiful shots that can go in Evan's reel but don't actually need to be in the film? So that was definitely, you know, learning through the edit a little bit. And where there's smoke, absolutely we learned a lot in the edit. Kind of changed the order a little bit and just I think sometimes it's about understanding to have a really good understanding of what you're going for. Evan and I keep, you know, telling each other, hopefully, the more we make, the more we'll be able to translate what we wanted into the film that we're going to have. But in the meantime, you know, you're, you're constantly learning about when you're on set, there's the, the film you wrote, and then there's the film you shoot, and then there's the film you edit. And those are three very different films, and maybe one day the film we write will be the one we edit. But, you know, I think... That's a little narrow-minded in terms of it gets better. There are the film we wrote is not infallible. There are problems with it, and there are problems that you don't quite understand until until you're thinking about things like pace, until you have temp music in there, or you're looking at the expression of the actor. Maybe this moment needs right. to be. A, maybe this moment actually communicates more than what we thought it would, so we can get rid of that dialogue that explained it a little mm. bit. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, right, yeah. right. That's really interesting. Yeah, uh, we we uh, were fortunate enough to talk with Sean Baker last year about the Florida Project, and he he actually, I think he, he said uh, that the film you write the film three times: the first time when you write it, then when you shoot it, and then when you edit it. And yeah. I think that sort of sounds like kind of your experience as well, as there's just so many. I imagine even on set, like when you're shooting something like Bandito, that you're encountering encountering variables in real life that you couldn't plan for while you're writing oh absolutely you know when you plan a a shoot day something we learned on that short for sure was when you plan a shoot day you know you assume that you will have a 12-hour work day but something that we genuinely did not take into account until we were there was that in the summer you don't have 12 hours of the sun being down at all (laughs) right 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 so we're doing these three overnights and the sun starts rising and you you're done shooting for the day <laughs> when it. it's not nighttime anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So that was, uh, let's call it a learning experience. Right, um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you're constantly adapting. And even in terms of blocking, you know, when you write something, you imagine Bandito is definitely an example of something that we couldn't do too many blocking rehearsals. We bought toy cars to actually explain the blocking to a lot of the department heads and so that we were all on the same page of, of what it would look like and how we wanted to shoot it. But, you know, when you're there, you realize, like, oh, do we really need to show this pickup truck drive to the back of the semi-truck, or can you just cut to it being there? You know, you're you're constantly making choices that are to save time and also because is, you have to ask yourself, is that actually necessary? Do you need to explain some things with the camera, or will the audience just be on board for cutting later or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's 2018, the year mm-hmm. of oversaturation <laughs> of content, of images, of everything in your face. There's so many ways to get it in a way that's fantastic. It's so great. I can see so many more films than I could have, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. But we wondered sort of how you how you market yourself in this oversaturated landscape. Um, you know, and you mentioned film festivals and you've also show all of your shorts on your website. You know, so how critical is, um, a, say, a film festival to your work um, first exposure versus Vimeo versus Instagram? You know, how are you marketing yourself in an appropriate way today? You know, it's, it's a really interesting question, and I think that it's, going to be answered the best with hindsight so 10 years from now i'll have a way better answer we'll call you back but yeah uh, (laughs) stand by um but no it's it's been an interesting thing to figure out you know i think also what this oversaturation of images uh, is in this digital age there's so much content being made and for example when you leave film school so many people aren't making narrative film content. You know, they're making branded commercials, they're making music videos, they're doing tabletop commercials. There's so much content to be made that's not narrative films. And so in terms of having a souped up website that has that displays your work, in terms of having twenty thousand followers on Instagram, that might be the bet like if you're pursuing commercial content uh, and music videos and stuff, those I think are very important and necessary to your online brand, to people looking you up and getting a flavor for what you do. I think that that is definitely important for uh, on a, in a commercial world and on a commercial level. For narratives, though, you know, it's, it's interesting in terms of going to a film festival. You know, Evan and I have been fortunate enough that a bunch of our shorts have, we've had three shorts at Tribeca and um, Homing In played at um, BFI in London and Champs-Élysées in, in France, and those festival experiences have been amazing, and they've, they've put us in the room with a lot of people that, so first of all, you know, it's a, it's a little stamp of approval, so when you're talking to people about where your films have played, there's um, a little, I guess, cr- credence that comes with, with you as a filmmaker. You know, you're saying it's not just that you're not the only person in the world jumping up and down saying, I'm good, I'm good, look at me. It's like, you know, other people have said it too a little bit, so... <laughs> So that helps. Yeah. But it's the festival experience, I think, has been great for us in terms of meeting people. And, uh, you know, a festival like Tribeca, which does such an amazing job of connecting filmmakers because they have a great programming uh, of events during the festival. And it's great because you're not meeting someone once at a party. I mean, of course, you're meeting a lot of people once. But there are a lot of people, filmmakers in your block, uh, for if you're making shorts or even for features, like, you see them not once but several times throughout the week or the 10 days or the two weeks of the festival. Mm-hmm. So it's really great because, you know, meeting someone once is one thing. You get their email address, you can follow up, whatever. But when you meet people, you know, when you hang out with them pretty much exclusively for, for 10 days, it's an actual friendship. It's an actual connection. You get to understand what they've made but also what they're trying to make, where they're moving forward. And I think we've, we have a great network of filmmakers from those festivals, from experiences at festivals that are – that are way stronger than just simply meeting someone, getting their email address, and hoping to stay in touch, you know? So on that side, it's been great. On the other side of things, you know, I didn't realize, it's so silly, I didn't realize the impact of having all of your stuff online can have for you as a filmmaker until, 
this spring until a month ago. You know, one good pitch I made in the summer of 2015. It was at Tribeca in 2016. Um, I won one of the uh, AT&T Entertainment Project as a student film category, and the film won an award there, and so AT&T had the rights to it for a year. So in 2018, I've put a film online. So I got to put One Good Pitch online in January, and then uh, I put on... premiered Love Otisville, and then Sanderson to Brackettville came out as a Vimeo staff pick, and then Homing In went online on Short of the Week. So I've you know, kind of put out a film a month for, for most of 2018, and it's been a very different experience for me as a filmmaker at the moment, just in terms of the number of people that reach out uh, on a daily or weekly basis, you know, whether it's a composer who likes your work and wants to collaborate you, but collaborate with you, but also uh, a lot of production companies for com- that you know for commercial content that want to talk to me about repping, like representation, hmm. or you know feature film production companies that want to talk about what I'm working on and talk to me about features. I didn't realize that there is actually a big difference about not having your stuff online and having your stuff online. You know, people didn't know what I had made before and now they've seen them and they like my films and they're reaching out and so I it's I guess it is it is very helpful to have everything online you know (laughs) they say that you should be you know very deliberate and specific about your your online premiere try and get it on a website like you know have it be a Vimeo staff pick or short of the week or you know there's websites like no budge or there are other great platforms to premiere your short, and you should treat your online premiere, you know, in terms of reaching out to people, reaching out to press, you know, try and make it seem like it's your, your, it's your film's second coming out party. The first one was <laughs> at its first festival, and, you know, now it's online. But it, you should really treat that with a, a lot of, you know, put a lot of energy into that and effort because that's where things are starting to happen now that people have seen my work. And I didn't understand that, you know, while festivals are very helpful in terms of, being there, being in the room, meeting a lot of people. Now there's different kinds of people that I didn't meet in the room that are now getting to see my work and they're responding to it. And it's, it's been great, you know, now that uh, the work has been available. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It's, yeah. uh... it's almost a one-two punch. You need to go to the festivals, get FaceTime with people, understand the industry, but then having your work online allows you to build an audience <laughs> and for anybody to really stumble upon it. Um, yeah, also for Bandito, we wondered if it was difficult um, fitting all of the accolades on your title shot. You've got all, <laughs> you've did, got like yeah. so many winning things that you can almost not see the, the shot right. there. Did, did you leave awards for other people or did you guys just take them all? Um, <laughs> you know, Bandito was our first big short and we were very adamant about let's send it everywhere. Let's mm-hmm. email every film festival that we think would be interested and just try and get it everywhere. And it's interesting because, you know, with the exception of the, let's call it, more top-tier festivals that it played at, the most exposure it got is when it went online as a on short of the week and as a Vimeo staff pick, and it has like 90,000 views to date. And Evan and I have gotten, I mean, Evan definitely has gotten way more um, things have happened for him a lot more since it went online. But it's interesting because, you know, it's just it's different types of people reaching out. So there's a chance that to finance your feature film, people that you met at the festival, people that you meet at Tribeca, people that you meet in the room at Sundance or South by or something like that, they might be able to be more instrumental for you in terms of getting your first feature financed. And there's a chance the online 
contacts you're making might be more fruitful on a on a commercial level, on a branded content level in the digital space. So it's like you can't just compare quantity of emails versus quality. Like they are different sets of people, I think, reaching out. But, you know, uh, Bandito is just a great example of like it screened at 20, let's call it not top tier festivals, 40, like it screened at so many, but there were definitely a group of festivals that we didn't go to. They're definitely locally helmed, you know, whatever city there are in middle of in like Bloomington, Indiana or something like that. And we didn't attend the festival and I can't exactly say, oh, that was such a fruitful, you know, thing because we were there, we met so-and-so, but it's so hard because you never know who saw your film where mm-hmm. is going to reach out and, yeah. call, you know. So, so Parker, it's been really great talking with you. We want to be mindful of your time. Uh, and one of the things I just wanted to kind of wrap with, one of the themes that you brought up earlier, and I, I was thinking it earlier, but there is something that, like, is very um, aesthetically American and blue-collar and... The, the, about the nature of some of your films, whether it's the the uh, where um, where there's smoke, which your your firefighters, that whole thing, one good pitch, the baseball, um, Bandito, like it opens with this really great like um, kids hunting rabbits, and it feels almost at the beginning very idyllic and things like that, and they all kind of start out a little bit that way, but there's always a little bit of a twist and that kind of thing. But I wondered, what is it about? Um, you had mentioned earlier kind of that romanticized version of America. What is it you're trying to explore there? Like, what is it that's inspiring you to to keep working with these visuals and these things? I think sometimes with inspiration, you don't, you can't answer that question for yourself, but you know, you know you're interested, so you keep pressing it, you keep going there and, and keep exploring. I think it does come down to the movies I watched growing up, definitely inform the movies I want to make, you know, and uh, Evan and I definitely have a shared um group of films that we we love that you know we're very interested in those kinds of stories these higher concept you know action or adventure or thriller films that are set in America and maybe it's because both of us you know I come from New York we're not from certain kind like there's something exciting about things that I don't quite know what the day to day looks like but I can only, I have an idea of what they look like of of what it does what it's like to live in a small town you know and so there's like something very fascinating about the unknown but of like this of this great uh what were some of the films I'm curious um you know we love everything from like ET to the departed to mm-hmm. I mean Evan loves Indiana Jones but like I love <laughs> you know wise. Jason Reitman films, like Up in the Air, Thank You for Smoking, mm-hmm. Juno, mm-hmm. to also, um, you know, The Fighter, uh, The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. There are these uh, prisoners. There are these films, No Country for Old Men. Sure. They're just these films that take place in small-town USA that they are specific. They are specific to the location. They don't, and, you know, uh, since I've started taking stills, I've definitely started doing a lot more road trips last summer i drove from here to park city from new york to park city utah and you know i'm definitely starting to on you know just on the bare level starting to like understand there is absolutely a flavor to you know i think five years ago i would have said like oh yeah there's small town america as if it's this one giant huge circle (laughs) in the middle but no there's absolutely a flavor of uh of you know what it's like a rural town in the south um in, you know, parts of West Virginia or Virginia, 
to a rural town in West Texas, they feel completely different. They look completely different. The temperature of the heat is completely different now that I've been at a lot of places in the summer. Um, But, you know, I think there's just a fascination with this idea of places we saw in movies we love, you know, in, in Back to the Future, in Contact. I love Contact, the Robert Zemeckis film. You know, there's this, like, adventure, um, and mystery and like thriller, you know, Zodiac. There's just so many, I guess, American films and American filmmakers, uh, that, I mean, even non-American filmmakers like Vim Benders is a huge, uh, influence on my current visual style and color palette. Him, his work and Robbie Mueller's work are a huge source of inspiration to me. And, you know, you take a look like, uh, at something like Paris, Texas. And I mean, that's definitely in terms of inspiration, Jason is in love with Paris, Texas, and that was a big reference for him uh, on a color level for his book. But there's just something, um, there's a longing for an America I feel like I'm never going to quite get to experience or that possibly doesn't fully exist anymore or that never really did, but I like dream of that being like a, uh, an attainable thing for uh, place or setting uh, for stories, you know, that it feels like a culture that I did not get to live in, but I know enough about it that I want to tell stories there. Like there's a relatability based on my perspective, what I, my point of view, what I grew up watching, uh, that I just feel, yeah, I'm like endlessly fascinated with the American landscape, with, with certain kind of American stories. Cool. Well, Wonderful. Yeah, um, we've already mentioned parkerchill.com before we let you go what are you what are you working on now what can we look forward to from you um at the moment you know i'm definitely pursuing uh narrative filmmaking in terms of i'm uh writing a short i have a short film that i'm trying to get off the ground at the moment uh, and hopefully make this summer and i'm writing a feature um and then you know there's a commercial and music video side of things you know starting to pitch on a lot more um, commercial and music video work. I just got back from Portland uh, shooting um, a music video that was so great to be out there. I'd never been to the Pacific Northwest, and mm. the trees are oh, insanely yeah. tall and spooky and inspiring. <laughs> um, but then on a, I'm also focusing on stills, you know, a lot more um, than I thought I would be doing. But um, I have a, a book coming out. My friend Mark Katz great stills photographer. He is starting a serial publication, kind of like Deadbeat Club. Uh, it's mm. called Riot Time. And I'm the third, I guess, volume or installment of that publication. And it's a, a series of stills I shot called The Doctor's House. And yeah, this summer I'm also going on a road trip pretty soon uh, to do another series of stills of like teenage, uh, or young teenage girls. Um, and kind of just about summer in, you know, rural or small town America, I guess. But um, it's kind of just like uh, an age of adolescence specifically in the summer and what it's like to have certain kinds of, you know, freedom and how freedom is scary and and uh, kind of trying to explore a certain kind of change for young girls. But on a stills level, yeah, I mean, what's what's been very exciting for me about, I guess, the last year and definitely fueled by getting to be on the road with Jason was now I'm all about, you know, choosing your format based on your content and really exploring. I mean, I've since the, the road trip with Jason, I've shot stills on 4x5 um, using my friend's camera, and it's been really fun to understand 
what the perspective difference is, how, you know, space is rendered on 4x5 and how you get a different experience looking at a photo. And then I started shooting uh, quite a bit of 120 of medium format film on an old Raleigh Flex. And it's, it's really great, I think, for me to, like, understand that, yeah, how it's not just about depth of field. It's not just about perspective and vertical lines and, and the sharpness. You can get so much more detail out of a photo on 120 versus 35 or something. But it's also about the, the format that you're using kind of shapes the story that you're telling. So for stills, definitely, you know, you'll feel a clarity in the frame could, you know, inform what you make of what you're looking at and also how it handles light and how it definitely how it handles grain. I mean, I, I, I underexpose film quite a bit. Uh, people make fun of me for it, but um, I like grain and I like to underexpose my film. And it's been kind of cool to also just see like how different formats handle underexposure and how, um, how they handle even like, you know, portrait 800 on medium format underexposes and there's like a purple aspect to the shadow versus, you know, I underexpose it on 35 and you don't get that kind of color. And yeah, I'm definitely, I guess at the moment, very focused on how color really does change the story you're telling and how color can give you a feeling and you can use color to really craft the experience of looking at that image or if it's in a film looking at, you know, in a certain scene, how it, it gives you a feeling. You can create a look and how a look can really can yeah really deliver right. I guess a, a feeling mm -hmm. and so um, I guess a consistent thing across my work is definitely a huge fascination in color and using it to yeah I guess communicate something yeah. as part of the storytelling yeah and and are are you approaching as you explore still film um, and, and you like you're doing these entire projects on it are you approaching these as like um, like the project you're doing this summer about rural America this is the, I'm going to do this. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it becomes a magazine. Or is the intention that I'm exploring this and it may end up as a film at some point? Or are you starting to see these as two distinct creative outlets for you as a storyteller still in motion? I'm still really still figuring that out. You know, I have this friend, Mark, who is starting this um, serial publication. He loves photo books and he collects a lot of them, has an insane library of them. And when I uh, was started, started meeting with him to uh, organize my book, he started showing me a lot of books. And I started understanding that you can, what it really means to shoot for a book, not just shoot for a, a collection of photos that we'll call a series, but the experience of a book and how some books are the, the only way, the premier way, the, like, the best way to experience those photos, it, like the book is the exhibition format. It's not like, oh, these also could be in a gallery. These mm -hmm. also could be on your website. Like the point of, of creating that content was the book. And like there's something really interesting to me about that that I, that I want to practice. I want to try that. Right. I want to try and see, you know, what it means to shoot for a book in terms of the order of the images and the not just the layout but the selection but also the like – the fact that the book is is the point changes what you shoot, changes how you shoot it. You know, sure. I definitely learned that once I saw um, a lot of Jason's photos printed, it clicked for me. It, it, his photos, so much of his photos made so much sense to me once I saw them printed because, because of 4 by 5 because of the perspective but, and the color palette and the, uh, how he printed them. It just made sense in terms of what he was saying was 
only delivered in a printed image. It didn't, I, you know, the photos looked beautiful looking at them on a computer, but once I saw them printed, it like, it sounds stupid, but like, oh, I, I understood it. <laughs> I just, I understood it more as a printed image. And so I think at the moment, photographically at least, I definitely, it still will inspire my motion picture work, but I, I'm kind of fascinated with, um, with exploring printing more and exploring right. what, you know, now that, because, for example, I love grain. I love to underexpose my film quite a bit, uh, and I push it. But once I started printing, I started understanding that, oh, grain doesn't look that cool printed. <laughs> it only looks cool, you know, backlit on your phone, on on a screen, on Instagram, or on your website, or something like that. And and so, like, shooting to print changes the content, too. It yeah, changes right. what what's interesting to scroll by on your phone. But, you know, in a book that image should stop you. You should stop on page six and take in that image and stop what you're doing and absorb it and, and really read it. And that, so, so what you shoot has to be stoppable and it has to be like part of the experience of flipping through a book or even walking through a gallery space. The images just have a different function than they would smaller on your screen, you know, that kind of thing. So at the moment, I think photographically, I'm definitely interested in, practicing, exploring, trying out, you know, exercising, shooting to print. Right. Well, because, I mean, then sometimes when you're just shooting to shoot, the image itself is the final product. But if you're shooting to print, the print is the final product. And that does change a lot. And it changes how, if you can't, like Jason's prints are enormous, some of them. Yeah. So like seeing those in person, which I haven't, but I, w- I mean, I would love to, because it must really transform mm-hmm. like how, you, like, as you say, how you Your take experience. that image in yeah. and how you experience it. Oh, absolutely. And even, I mean, I've seen some of his like 40 inch by 50 inch prints, but also uh, even in the book, they, the way he shot them, the best way I can, you know, yeah, like explain four by five to someone is that if you were, if I were to take a photo of uh, a a TV, there's like one of the last photos in his book is like an old timer sitting on his porch uh, in, I think it's in Paris, Texas, actually. But uh, if, if I took a photo on 35, it would look like a photo of that house on the side of the road. It would look like a photo of a guy versus the format and seeing it, it but specifically seeing it printed, it feels like you're standing there looking at that. Mm. And the experience of looking at it printed has this vibe to it, to me at least, that it feels like that thing is currently sitting there. Like right now, if you could transport yourself to Paris, Texas, that guy is still chilling on his porch, sitting in that like Adirondack chair or something. Right. And it's, it's currently still like that, which I think is part of what, you know, Jason's whole series was about. But to me, the, the experience of, feel, of seeing it printed was, it's not just like, oh, that's a, you know, a cool old gas station. It's, it was way more uh, about that these things are there right now, that they're yeah. currently... They're actively just sitting there, and, and I, it didn't click until I saw it printed. And, or even, even in the huge prints, I mean, there's an insane detail to them, obviously because of the nature of the negative, I mean, 4 by 5 being huge, but there's something just about the realism that comes across when you see it printed. And if you think about how many pictures a day you see on Instagram, how many things you scroll by, that if that stuff were printed, it would be meaningless, and it wouldn't be... I'm not saying there isn't great stuff on Instagram. I mean, I post all the time, and so many people do, and there is a, it's really a, there is a great community and film community on, on Instagram. But um, so much of it is, like, 
potato chip photography of you just you scarf it up, you eat it, you chew, you, you scroll up, it's gone, and you already forgot about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that stuff is not meant to be printed. It's not meant to stop you. And it, even if it were, it, it wouldn't. You know, it's a, a sunset with cool clouds, and it's pink, and that's awesome. But, you know, yeah. a yeah. book is just more of a... Um, I guess there's more of a thesis behind it. There's more of an intention. There's more of you're trying to say something. Absolutely. Um, Well, I'm excited to see your work from this summer project. I really am. Yep. I'm going to – I'm excited, too, because last summer when I went – when I drove cross-country, I – you know, it was things I'm interested in, but I shot a lot of gas stations and a lot of humanless frames, and it's easy to do that. It's easy to not – force yourself to interact and uh i'm excited because this is the first portrait series i'm going to shoot that i don't know the subjects you know i've shot a couple of portrait series but the the subjects have been my best friends so i've known them forever and we get to figure them out figure some of the frames out together and you know there's definitely a collaboration there but i'm very comfortable with the subjects Uh, so i'm kind of excited to to force myself to try and go you know out of of my comfort zone and, and shoot subjects i don't know Wonderful. Cool. Well, good luck with that. Well, Parker, it's been wonderful to talk with you. We can't wait to see what you're doing. Everybody out there, look in the show notes. We'll put links into Parker's work. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is a great satisfaction to be able to speak to you through the medium of this wonderful invention.